This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Columbia Bank and Tacoma Creates. Welcome to Tacoma Arts Live podcast series on our theater program, where we'll dive into the production and social positioning of each upcoming performance in our series. My name is David Fisher. I'm executive director at Tacoma Arts Live and serve as the co-producer for our theater program, along with Brett Carr. I use he, him pronouns, and today I'm wearing a blue t-shirt with a gray cover, uh, gray pants, and a baseball cap, along with my silver beard. Today's episode is The Last Days of Judas Iscariot by Stephen Adley Gurgis. It's coming up on October 13 through 23 at the Tacoma Armory. And today we're joined by a creative team member, uh, two of them, uh, Joshua Knudsen, uh, the director, and Jonathan Swindle, who will play Judas Iscariot. We want to thank our sponsors, Cosmo Construction and Tacoma Creates. And first, we'd also like to acknowledge that Tacoma Arts Live respectfully acknowledges that we gather on the traditional lands of the Puyallup people, and we pay our respects to elders both past and present. So a little background on our theater program. Uh, after more than about 25 productions or so since 2009, the trustees of Tacoma Arts Live authorized the permanent expansion to produce live theater at a professional level as an ongoing part of our mission and work. We have the vision of this program to share the curatorial leadership among Pacific Northwest professionals, and we do that by convening and reading plays, discussing them in depth, and uh, influencing uh, the play selection process. Our goal is to produce plays that engage empathy, spark community conversations, broaden understanding, bring joy, challenge, laughter, and catharsis, and are a key program for involving more community via free tickets and reducing barriers to access. Another important organizational update that I want to share with you is that in the month of August 2022, the Tacoma Armory received a major charitable gift from the Roberson family here in Tacoma, and the gift was a building the historic 1909 Armory. And that building is so remarkable in many ways, not only in that it, uh, because of office space and the leasing, long-term leasing of that office space, creating a revenue generator that makes the building self-sustaining, uh, it's the parade floor up top, the historic place uh, where the National Guard would uh, practice and uh, march and was also, and even more importantly for us, a historic place where the community would convene for local dances and uh, different kinds of events for the community from the turn of the 20th century all the way to today. About 
uh, 12 or so years ago, Mr. Roberson came to the Tacoma Arts Live team and asked us to manage that parade floor, bring community events in, the kind that he remembers uh, as a young person here in the region, and make it available to the community overall. And so that's what we've been doing for about 12 years. And then most recently, uh, Mr. Roberson passed away, and it was his plan to gift this building to uh, Tacoma Arts Live, the nonprofit arts center. I can't tell you, can't begin to describe what it means to have this building come to us at this particular moment. We are at the intersection throughout the world, throughout the nation, for the performing arts. And that is an intersection where we must significantly transform how we engage community, how we tell stories, and break down some of the barriers uh, of the past, meaning that being stuck in a fixed seat, staring in one direction, well, that works for some of us, but not all of us. And so we've really got to look at how can we bring the audience in, make the uh, space more intimate, give them a chance to go deeper into the performance experience. And the Armory, because it's a completely open framework, no proscenium, no uh, fixed seat, we can do whatever we want in this space. And so we've just been uh, experimenting and absolutely delighted to bring innovation to the arts scene here in Tacoma. Uh, most recently, we've brought uh, the immersive experience for Van Gogh and then followed that up with an immersive experience called The Infinite that explored life on the International Space Station. And now for the next six months, we'll be exploring community events, community performances of all stripes, uh, festival Latinx, and all the way to our professional theater program and the production of Judas, uh, the last days of Judas Iscariot. So really happy uh, to be working in this space and energizing it on behalf of the community. So this uh, production, uh, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot, will be the first theatrical production in the Armory. And this is uh, a wonderful immersive theater experience, mixing both comedy and drama, and sets it amidst a time-bending world between heaven and hell. The Last Days of Judas Iscariot re-examines the fate of the New Testament's greatest villain, a traitor who betrayed his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Set in purgatory in a courtroom, Judas is brought to judgment to determine if he is guilty of the greatest betrayal of all time. And through outrageous comedy and deep pathos, this play challenges audiences to reflect upon their own beliefs, their own sin, and to reconsider what they understand about forgiveness, faith, and the human inside of one of history's most infamous figures. The Last Days of Judas Iscariot is a non-traditional, sometimes absurdist approach to considering Judas. It's a piece deeply resonant of faith in a loving God while questioning dogma, the inconsistencies in text and faithful practice, and the barriers we create between ourselves and God. The choice of this play is wholly reflective of Tacoma Arts Live's values. It engages empathy, it sparks community conversation, broadens understanding, 
and we promise it will bring joy, challenge, laughter, and catharsis. I couldn't be more proud to be bringing this play to Tacoma and to have the artistic team that we've assembled uh, to bring it to life. It's an amazing piece of theater, and uh, I really encourage you to come on out and check it out. So let me uh, more formally introduce our guests, uh, Joshua Knudsen and Jonathan Swindle, uh, to talk about their careers. And uh, also, we'll talk a lot about the play itself and what their experience is uh, as uh, the artistic team bringing it forward. Let me introduce the director, Joshua Knudsen. He's a past member of Actors' Equity, having performed in several productions in and outside New York City in the 1990s. His credits include The Taming of the Shrew at the Westport Country Playhouse, directed by Josephine Abadie, a season at the Pearl Theater in New York City, and a national tour of Treasure Island with Theater Works USA. And most recently, he performed in Coma Arts Live's spring 2019 production of Art, and directed Oleana for us uh, in early 2020. Josh has a BFA in performance and an MA in theater history, both from Arizona State University. He studied under Robert Lewis, one of the founders of the Actors Studio while in New York. And Josh has had an amazing 25-year career in higher education advancement and now runs his own consulting firm here in Tacoma, Josh Knudsen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Yeah, it's great to have you. Why don't you uh, uh, let folks know uh, your pronouns and what you're wearing and all of that happy stuff. Sure, I use he, him pronouns, and I am wearing jeans and Birkenstock sandals, um, and I also have a gray beard like my colleague next to me, David. Not quite as gray, I will say. Not <laughs> quite as gray. Well, welcome. It's great to have you here. And we're also joined by uh, Jonathan Swindle. And uh, Jonathan is an actor from Cleveland, Tennessee, and currently is based in Seattle, Washington. This is his second production with Tacoma Arts Live, following last season's pandemically delayed production of Tribes. But we got it up on the stage, and it was absolutely fantastic. And other recent uh, professional credits uh, include Pericles uh, with the Green Stage, Around the World in 80 Days, and Death Trap with Southern Arena Theater, and The Winter's Tale with Tecumseh Outdoor Drama. Jonathan is a recent graduate from the University of Southern Mississippi with a Master's of Fine Arts in Performance. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much, David. Glad to be here. Uh, absolutely. Why don't you let folks know your profile. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, like you said, my name is Jonathan. I use he, him pronouns. And right now I am wearing jeans, a brown uh, short sleeve button up shirt. And uh, I have a beard, but it's not a silver beard like my two, uh, my two partners in crime here. It's a little bit more red. There isn't an ounce of silver in there, well, despite Judas's uh, storytelling. That, that's here. true. That's true. Yes. Well, welcome, Jonathan. So, um, Josh, this is a, a big show. This is um, a complex show. How are you doing? How's your pulse rate? You're uh, about two weeks away from tech mm -hmm. and launching into the, the final runway here. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. I mean, we've got a terrific cast of actors um, working on this show, and the production team has been 
just leaned in, moving into a new space, you know, presents, as you said, an interesting set of opportunities and challenges and discoveries along the way. The play itself, like you said, is it's dense, you know, it's 15 actors, 20 characters. Um, there's a lot of, for lack of a better term, sleight of hand that happens in the style of the play. And so trying to bring those elements together, uh, has been challenging and really wonderful. Um, and the content also, um, you know, just deep and rich and have needed to spend some time together as a team, really understanding it so we can carry it with some fidelity. The characterizations in this piece are so at once joyful and surprising and kind of spunky, you know, I don't know if that's that right word, but, <laughs> um, and, uh, also, uh, will turn around in a heartbeat and touch you to your core mm. in a way that is rare for any storytelling, I think. But this is really masterful stuff, mm -hmm. I think. So what's been your experience in playing between those poles, so to speak? Well, I think that goes back to that idea of some sleight of hand. The show is constantly um, shifting and, and always sort of changing. So in, in one of the monologues that I think of, it starts out um, wild and raucous and like a rock show and ends uh, in, in a really deep sort of contemplation and uh, catharsis uh, for Judas and for the other character on stage. And it's uh, so it'll, it plays little tricks on you like that and trying to work with the actors to make sure that both the humor, but it's that we're not caricaturing humor. What we're doing is we're trying to find the humor in the deep honesty that runs throughout this script. And across time and, and across eons of time, right? So um, some of the characters in this are surprising uh, as, as we navigate through this piece. There's, uh, and that is part of the absurdism mm -hmm. in a way, mm -hmm. right? Um, has that, how has that been to be in a world that is not one that we know mm -hmm. per se in, mm -hmm. it's a courtroom, right? Right. We know that, but, but talk a little bit more about. Well, so the, the premise being obviously that you're in a courtroom trial, the audience is fundamentally there observing as jury, uh, in the, in, and it's not like Judas is testifying on his own behalf. He's, he's catatonic. He's, he's condemned himself to a hell of despair. And um, so the lawyers, the attorneys, they march in uh, experts like Sigmund Freud or um, saints. Uh, the, the apostles will make their appearance to speak on behalf of Judas. Um, uh, so you, it, one of the apostles shows up and actually testifies in the stand, Mother Teresa. So you get a really interesting cast of characters, like you said, from across, um, not a realistic time frame. Um, the judge himself is from, you know, the Civil War. Um, and some of them have spent a very long time in this place waiting for to move on. And I use that term move on uh, intentionally because the definition of heaven and hell in this uh, are not as clear as two doorways, one up, one down. Um, mm -hmm. It is about um, condemning ourselves to a place that we can't get out of ourselves and move beyond. Yeah. I think that, um, what you just said reflects back on the audience experience tremendously and is 
part of what uh, I think is so moving about this piece is as an audience member, you're watching and it's rolling along and it's crazy and zigzagging characters and all of this. And then all of a sudden it just grabs you and it is very much about you, the audience member. It is very much about how we carry our our own judgments, how we carry our own, our own judgments of others mm-hmm. and then ultimately of ourselves. And I think that's just such amazing playwriting. Yeah, that's the, those are the core themes that are absolutely resonant, I think, when you read or you see this show. Uh, the idea of the ability to forgive and self-forgiveness as key to redemption um, and that despair itself is hell. So it's repeated in this show over and over again, this idea of condemning, condemning oneself to, to a hell of despair. And um, what that connotes is that nobody is dragging you down into hell, you know, these, you know, the hands of demons or the, you know, or, and, and nor is God reaching down and providing your salvation. Those ultimately are, are at your disposal, those choices. Absolutely. So as we've been saying, this play is... Uh uh set in purgatory and it's uh well could to correct just okay. to correct sorry it's in a place called hope that is a corner of purgatory thank you a place called hope yeah which again goes back to this idea of this the judge has been there since uh hanging himself on a battlefield right waiting to move on he has hope he doesn't even want to hear the case of judas but when he remembers what he's been there waiting for, right, for redemption. Mm-hmm. So hope, the reason it's called hope is obviously intentional. <laughs> I think that was where Bill Clinton was born, if I remember correctly. Say that again? I think that was where Bill Clinton was born. In hope? In hope. Oh, really? Yeah, Hope, Arkansas, I think. Yeah. Not this hope, though. Not this hope. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> Never know. He had his own. And I haven't been to Hope, Arkansas, so I really shouldn't. Yeah. He had his own purgatory. He's still <laughs> struggling with. So Jonathan, playing uh, Judas Iscariot comes with it a, um, uh, a burden um, that I can't even imagine trying to investigate and navigate. What, what have you been thinking about as you're trying to build this character from within what what juices are flowing for you what's going on in the inside playing judas is is very interesting because to a large extent kind of even in the, your description of the play and in the way people talk about him there's almost no religious figure more reviled in christian history than judas right mm-hmm. when when people think of like a biblical villain he's probably one of the first people that they'll think of I mean, you th- you 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 look even at a even at non-biblical literature like like Dante's Inferno. You know, Judas, according to Dante, is condemned to the ninth circle of hell, being personally gnawed on by Satan for all eternity for the for the the crime of betraying Jesus. And I I think probably the most interesting thing about tackling this character and this interpretation of the character is as much of the play is dedicated to try, to trying to kind of suss out the reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus. It's much more interested in just the consequences of that decisions rather than the reasons for it. And kind of dwelling on Judas as he exists um, post-betrayal, 
um, to examine the way that despair does affect people. You know, a according to a lot of um, a lot of Christian theologians, despair is the unforgivable sin. Not because it's it's a sin that can't be forgiven, but because it's a, it's a sin that doesn't allow itself forgiveness. Right? Despair is this feeling that. Regardless, it doesn't matter what you do, whatever you have done is unworthy of forgiveness. You are unworthy of forgiveness. And that's, that's I think, the most interesting thing that's been, that I've been dwelling on, um, figuring out this character of Judas, is how do you, how do you express that complete, all-encompassing despair and, and, and lack of self-forgiveness, right? Um, how do you how do you how do you dwell in that place? How do you express that? And just exploring that idea of someone who has who has lost all sense of of self-respect, of hope, of belief that somebody else could love them. How how do you make that active? And how do you how do you um how do you convey that to an audience in a way that both inspires them to feel pity for the character and also inspires them to examine themselves? Um, that's been the challenge for me, uh, figuring Judas out. So the character is, uh, throughout some of the play, is silent. And is that expression of despair, that lack of hope, even though we are in a place called hope, he does not carry that hope. And, and he's not in hope, right? So he's being... He's, he's being tried but his place is solidly is in hell yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. along with his mom quite frankly right who have both succumbed to despair so that despair that silence is a bit of a projection screen for the audience i think i think it's interestingly intentional for the playwright to hold your communication until later in the play and Therefore, there is a, that engages empathy. It engages a connection, a desire for people to understand this sort of silent um, icon in front of them, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, not wanting to give too much away, other characters uh, engage and slowly you begin to speak and unlock mm -hmm. and begin to wrestle with that despair more actively. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? I think that, I think that's very fair mm -hmm. to say there's yeah. uh, you're right in that in the beginning of the play, Judas is, is, is kind of a, a mystery to the audience. He is very much a closed book, which I think is, is kind of intentional on his part as well. This sense of isolation, of shutting himself off from anything that will make him feel anything at all, um, is what keeps him locked in, in this hell that he's created for himself, what prevents him from his redemption. And then you see these scenes throughout his life. You see him as, as a young kid. You see him just following his, his betrayal of Jesus. Um, you see him at some other points as well. And you get to examine kind of the uh, the decisions that led him to that point. And I think it'll be easy for the audience to to look at him, to look at him in these situations and be able to to think of examples that they him, themselves have responded to things like this in their own way, times that they have been confronted with uncomfortable truths about themselves, about sins that they might have committed, about um, about interactions with people that have kind of brought 
if not full-on despair, hints of despair on them. And they'll be able to see that this Judas character is not just this, um, you, you kind of used the word icon before. He's not this uh, religious icon, this almost anti-religious icon in the way that that you might think. He's icon of evil. Exactly. Almost, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He's he's um he was his he was his own person in his own time. And um by following his journey, I, I think the audience might be able to identify them themselves in um in ways that if they're not careful, their journey might lead them to the same place. There's a sense of real humanity that emerges. Uh, out of Judas as the play evolves, and no, and it strips away that icon. It strips away the two dimensionality of villain and betrayer to bring people in to a sense of truth and intimacy uh, about the character. Mm-hmm. As you progress through that, where is there a, a trigger for you? Is there something that you're discovering? about Judas that has brought you to that humanity? To a lot, I, I consider myself to be um, a very introverted kind of person, um, just, just personally. Um, and in a lot of ways, I sense a lot of Judas in myself in that it's, it's very easy if you run up into socially, spiritually, um, in terms of, of, of love, of relationships, of things like that. If you run into any opposition, if the going gets tough at any point, it's very easy to just disconnect and retreat into yourself. And that's, that's the biggest point of connection, I think, between me and this character, is that it, it is easy to just allow yourself to feel nothing at all, because feeling nothing at all is better than having to feel pain right? It's better than hurting. And, um, that for me, that's the thing that, that when Judas experiences that in that play, I'm like, that's me. That's me right there. We are the same person in that regard. Um, and so I think that's both in this, uh, in, in the author's depiction of Judas and in the way that this production is involving, uh, evolving it, it, that to me is the big, big, like linchpin of what I'm trying to go for is communicating that sense of overwhelming despair and isolation, but being unable to reach out and grasp forgiveness, grasp somebody else, grasp love, because you're just so afraid of what that might make you feel. It might hurt really, really, really badly. It might cause you to think about things that you don't want to think about. Um, And ultimately, I find what the play encourages you to do is feeling something, feeling hurt, feeling pain, that can lead to love. And that is so much better than feeling nothing at all, than shutting yourself off. That is, that is the thing, that is the, the, the meatiest part of this role to me, is, is, mm-hmm. is, is figuring that out, how to express that. Um, and it's also the biggest point of connection that I have with that character, I think. Josh, this, I don't want to give the uh, listeners the impression that this is bleak and mm-hmm. um, where there is no hope and where we are just wallowing in despair. That mm-hmm. is not the case about this play at all, which is what makes it so remarkable is that intersection between the absurdism and the comedy mm-hmm. and the juxtapositioning between these hilarious depictions Mm -hmm. and the confrontation of despair. Mm -hmm. 
how is that? How are you doing in navigating that? And, and what are you, what are you looking forward to the most about the humor in the show? Oh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I can name one thing that I look forward to most in the uh -huh. humor. I would say that the interesting challenge is that it moves like a freight train, has to move like a freight train, like, like almost like you think about the courtroom movies that you see or that kind of drama, which is also filled with this sort of absurd, absurdist weirdness, non-realistic sort of courtroom space. And so it's, it's all happening in the moment and then it needs to leave room for these moments of reflection, right? When things happen again, it's that sleight of hand where it's rolling along at a pace and all of a sudden everything slows down and you need to reflect on something that Judas is experiencing or another character is experiencing. So there is a big part of this that has to do with the music and the pace of it. Um, and, uh, and keeping it at a tilt, you know, making sure that we roll through this and that, you know, we're thinking it fast. So, so there's this, um, uh, amazing language intersection mm -hmm. with this piece. It is this biblical setting, biblical characters with very contemporaneous language. Right. Sometimes uh, very uh, adult and in some ways obscene Absolutely. language, right? So um, why do you think, why is the playwright choosing to uh, take these historic characters mm -hmm. and create that intersection and tension with contemporaneous language and modes. Yeah. I, I think, um, it's really clear that when you go back to the first production, the author is it's the author's mindscape of these issues that he struggled with in his Christianity, um, with a backdrop of New York of, of, of the place he knew best. I think the, the opportunity that we were presented with is not necessarily trying to recreate a show about New York, but to embrace the fact that it does have a strong modern urban sensibility and the language intentionally shifts again, mercurially where uh, a character might be really, uh, you know, ribald in their sort of language, but then have that language shift in the middle of their, their monologue. And so that it takes on a very different tone. Um, so the language is used uh, as a way to also, I think, keep the audience engaged, but also have them sometimes shift back out of that, again, that freight train mode. It, it also feels to me that these characters who are iconic characters, Mother Teresa, um, Sigmund Freud, St. Monica, mm -hmm. sometimes I get the energy of this as, hey, I've been trapped in a flipping history book and I'm free now. So I'm just going to show you exactly how human and how uh, fiery and mm -hmm. full of life I really am. And yeah. there's something juicy about that. Issue. Sure. I think it's part of what a lot of the actors were asking about it had to do with how they think about the, how does, why does St. Monica, the, the mother of one of the fathers of the, the, you know, Christian religion, mm -hmm. Catholic church, you know, why does she, speak the way she does, you know, in this play. And I think the answer is, if you want to think of it from a realistic actor's perspective, how do I interpret this? She's been around for 2000 years. She's seen 2000 years of history and she's been able to go ahead and draw from 2000 years of language, right? Her, her book's a lot bigger. <laughs> her book's a lot bigger. <laughs> Absolutely. And her, and 
the Bible often has its intention of storytelling in a very narrow band. And to me, this feels like these characters are breaking out of those bands to show just exactly how fully human they are. <laughs> and that is a very uh, fun, funny, energizing, and ultimately uh, touching place to be. Well, so if you're pursuing honesty and you think about the Bible, right, um, it's not, it wasn't written by God or, you know, by Christ. It's written hundreds of years later by people who've interpreted, you know, the history that they saw. So, you know, again, these are constructs that we've created. It's a big part of how we think about this show too, is, you know, fundamentally our relationship to a loving God, but that as humans, we put a whole, a bunch of structures and constructs between us and that loving God. That may be a church. It may be a Bible. It can be a number of different things. Um, and with those structures come violences, come things that are create inconsistencies. So why is it that Judas, and I, I will tell you, half the actors that came in and auditioned for this show said growing up, I had real struggles with the Judas story. I asked my dad about why Judas ended up in hell. So I think it's not uncommon in Christian faith to listen to some of these inconsistencies within the book itself and say, so why did Caiaphas get off? Or why did Pontius Pilate get off? Why are these figures somehow then turned into martyrs and saints and Judas gets to spend eternity being gnawed on by Satan? Like that, that really, it feels inconsistent. And quite frankly, I've even been told that cross religions in the, in the Muslim faith, that there are questions about the Judas story. Like he didn't really commit one of the seven deadlies. How does he end up in, in hell for this? Mm -hmm. And so, um, by seeing them as more human, like you're talking about, we get away from the book, the structure, the dogma, and we start to unpack people, right? And then we also see parallels, not as stories or parables, but people going through struggles that have to do with their own forgiveness, their own. So yeah, I think it brings it closer to the audience that way. When I asked you to consider directing this play and gave you the script, you also shared it with your wife. I did. And her response kind of rocked you a little bit. What she came to you and basically what? So I, she, she, she reads before bed. And so she was reading, she read it over a series of nights and I had fallen asleep and she was finishing it. I knew she had finished it. And I, we woke up the next day and I said, so did you finish the play last night? And she said, yeah, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for causing me to ugly cry for two hours before so, I went to bed last night, so. you know, and I, and for her, she, she's, she's a very active member in the Episcopal church. And it goes back to this idea. You said it earlier. It is actually a, in spite of the language, in spite of the way it's constructed, it is a deep ethic expression of faith. And it, right. So, and it is exactly, I think how many Christians imagine a relationship to a loving God as not separated from you know, or separated by, again, bureaucracy and structure and, and this idea of self-forgiveness and of the fact that there's no door you walk through to go to hell, but that ultimately we release ourselves, right? Um, there, are some, there are some lines in this show, and I won't quote them, but that go back and they reflect on life, that talk about, like, if you were to live your best life, right? So that idea of how we judge ourselves at that moment when we're gone, right? Really powerful. Absolutely. And if we are to believe that all sin is 
available for redemption, which is what we're told in Christianity, why not Judas? Right. Who is consistently held outside of that equation and that opportunity. And that, to me, gets to the core of what is so touching uh, about this about this piece. Because we got to ask ourselves, right? And we got to ask ourselves, so who is the Judas in our life? Who is the Judas in society that we are projecting evil and betrayal on? And is that a faithful and loving response? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes this place so exciting, as well as the incredible uh, humor in it. Jonathan, how uh, is it working with the rest of the actors and watching their discoveries and how uh, it's all coming together as a whole? What do you what, tell me about the ensemble and working together? Uh, it's 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 been a while, I think, since I've been in a show that I've been this excited just to just to even be with with the with the group of people who are going to put it up for you. Everyone in this show is is so incredible in the way that they are asking these these questions about these 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 characters these historical individuals that um that that we perceive as as these kind of up there far away from us ideas rather than actual people and and the way that everybody is going in to 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 their characters to the witnesses that are being brought forth to testify on Judas's behalf to the to the staff of the courtroom, from the bailiff to the to the prosecutors to the judge, everyone is is a hundred percent dialed in on on figuring out, um, not just figuring out their arguments and and their response to Judas the character himself, but also figuring out how they themselves relate to this story, um, what from Judas's story they can they can draw out and apply to their own characters, and it's just really exciting to be in a space with so many people who are so dedicated to bringing this this fascinating and and funny and touching story to life it's it's really exciting and as we continue to move forward in rehearsals when we get into the space you know once everything starts getting stitched together i think it's going to be just this phenomenal expression of 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 faith of humanity um I'm I'm just thrilled. I'm so excited to to see how how it all comes together. Me too. It's one of the most diverse casts we've had, and it's one of the most talented casts we've had. I mm-hmm. can say just just bar none. So it's really fun to watch uh, as a producer. So Josh, uh, this is the first theatrical production in the Armory, uh, and that brings challenges and also excitement uh, about it. Um, it's an enormous space mm-hmm. to try and do an intimate story in. So mm-hmm. how, how are we, in your mind at least, uh, playing with that and, and overcoming some of the challenges? Um, well, I think first wanted to make sure that we thought of using the whole armory. So that, again, adds to that challenge, which is, I think, you know, the dimensions is 200 by 100 mm-hmm. feet. And yes. um, we <laughs> yes. don't need that big a set. <laughs> Not <laughs> so, inches, so, feet. So It's the only room I go in that the next time I go in, it's bigger than I remember it the last time, every time. So, right, yeah. right. And and uh, so, I mean, it does bring, I think that I would more sort of, sort of pitch my kudos to the designers in this who have continually gone back and forth, continued to innovate and figure out ways to 
again, make a theatrical and innovative experience, audience experience happen in a space where um, people marched or played basketball. It looks it fundamentally uh, is a gymnasium, a huge gymnasium. Yeah. But when we look at the designs that we've put together uh, for this, I'm just really excited. I'm excited about how it brings the audience in as immediately jurors and in judgment in this, um, that it brings them into a transition that begins with, you know, um, that uh, an introduction to that idea of structure and bureaucracy between you and a loving God, and ultimately allows you to pass into a space where this judgment's going to happen. I think the audience is going to be able to see each other in addition to see the actors, which I think is a powerful part of how this, um, how this play has been put together. So that again, as we're talking about judgment of self and others, to see your fellow audience members from across the stage is, is I think a, an important and intimate addition. How are you giving them a, a sense of their role in this? Well, we don't want to give away too many things, but, mm. but I, I think it's going to be very clear from the beginning that they are, they are in judgment. They have arrived in judgment that the a courtroom and the lawyers in particular will spend their try, time trying to convince them of their arguments. Um, and again, I think there will be layers to that experience so that they will feel that way from the very beginning of the moment that they walk into the armory mm -hmm. to the time that they walk out of it. Fair enough. That's a good teaser. I want to give uh, significant props and uh, outline to the playwright. Uh, he is uh, Stephen Adley Gurgis, uh, Irish Catholic, native of New York. His uh, father was a Coptic uh, Egyptian, so comes from this amazing intersection within uh, Christian heritage. Uh, he's a member of New York City's uh, Labyrinth Theater Company, and his plays have been produced on five continents and all throughout the United States. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner. He is a Drama Desk uh, winner, an Outer Critics Circle winner, uh, and best play for uh, Lucille Lortel Foundation. So he is an amazingly uh, credentialed and award-winning playwright. This play comes to us as some of the best literature that we have ever produced. You agree? Completely, completely, yep. and filled with so many discoveries and surprises for all of us, which has been a big part of the journey. Anything I didn't ask that uh, you want to share that is important that you want folks to know about? I'll let you start. <laughs> sure, no, sure. No pressure. I think, uh, I think a lot of the time uh, when we think about... Um, art that, uh, that interacts and, and talks about faith in America specifically, we have a kind of, um, we have a kind of stereotypical understanding of it. You know, it's, it's, it's veggie tales. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's facing the giants. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with that movie that came out several years ago. It's very kind of, um, it, it feels almost manipulative in the way that it, that it expresses Christianity and faith as this, um, as this completely easy journey, like just, just believe and everything will work out. Just right? come along. It, it feels kind of like it's, it's art that's made exclusively for, for itself to exist in a way. And what I just find so fascinating and wonderful about this play is it, it very much is made from a perspective within the faith, but it is not focused on 
fetishizing the faith, if that makes any sense. This is a play about how difficult it can be sometimes to believe, how difficult it can be to to open yourself up to forgiveness, to allow yourself to forgive yourself. And even just outside of the realms of faith, it is very much a play about Christianity, but even more than that, it's about, it's about humanity. It's about people. It's about the way that we see ourselves. It's, a, it's about the way that other people see us. And I, I just think it's so rare for a play to, to come along that deals so intensely and so intimately and so knowingly with the Christian faith while also being so open and so um, and so easy to access for people who might not be a part of that, which I just think is, is fascinating and incredible, and I, I couldn't be happier to be a part of it. Fantastic. Josh, any parting thoughts? You know, there's a, a, a hearing device used as a, as a, a sort of mic, just an instrument in the piece, uh, in the play. And so I imagine like an audience can come and listen to this and their hearing device would probably hear on two different levels, right? And one of them is loud and boisterous and wild. And then there's the other level, which is nuanced and I think pretty important to the time, you know, as we think about as you said earlier, our relationship to others, our relationship to ourselves, our capacity for forgiveness, our for, our capacity for empathy, empathy and 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 uh, understanding, right? It's all it's all here, and all and along the way that there's a pin that pricks the preciousness uh, that sometimes we hold, like you were saying, John, Jonathan, around faith around the religiosity of uh, and dogma of structure there is a pin that is pricking the balloons of that i think it's and a little bigger a, than a pin that, actually <laughs> i think yeah, it's okay. a little bigger than a All pin right. and uh but it's yeah. uh but it's a challenge you know and it's done with wonderful piercing humor and and you can't help but go through and just guffaw through this show, and as I said at the beginning, turn around the next minute, and you're you're wiping away tears. Mm -hmm. And damn, that's the essence of good theater, gentlemen. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for the artistic contributions you are both making, and on behalf of uh, all of the others in the ensemble and the company that are bringing this uh, play to life, who are all each and every one incredible. Thanks to them. Uh, and it's a, a pleasure to create a platform uh, on which such creativity and expression can happen. I want to thank uh, Joshua Knudsen and Jonathan Swindle for joining us today for our podcast on the last days of Judas Iscariot coming up, running October 13 through 23 at the Tacoma Armory. Tickets are available at Tacoma Arts Live. I want to thank our sponsors for this podcast and the program, Cosmo Construction and Tacoma Creates. So, Thanks, folks, for taking a listen and lending us your ear for this understanding of this incredible show coming up. For more information, please do go to TacomaArtsLive.org. Until next time, I'm David Fisher. Thank you. This program is brought to you by On Purpose Recordings. 
Created and produced by Chris Blunt. Mixed and edited by Joff Gibbs.